You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, trade and technology, politics, security, and a lot more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Well, welcome to all of our listeners. Um, I'm really delighted to have with me today Andreas Klute. Um, Andreas, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Jeff. Um, Andreas is a name that may be familiar to you. He is opinion columnist for Bloomberg, previously was the editor-in-chief of Handelsblatt Global um, for a couple of years when, uh, when that was uh, uh, in existence, and also correspondent for The Economist in many places over uh, quite a long period of time. You should read his columns for his keen observations of U.S. politics and international affairs, um, but also because it may be the only place you're going to see the word autochthonous uh, in print. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to... Good, good you know, for you for reading closely and not skipping over that part. It was a... <laughs> I'm always looking for those Easter eggs that are hidden uh, in your columns. And today what we're going to talk about is... You know, the, my words... I try to pick short monosyllabic Anglo-Saxon words, yeah. but when I can't, I go all out in minimum of five syllables. Contrast and spice yes. is uh, is what makes a dish um, interesting and palatable, I think. Um, so we're talking today about international order, and in particular, the U.S. Uh, role in international order and what that means for Europe. So that's kind of where I thought we would start um, one of your most recent columns, Andreas, you talk about the U.S. Um, as a hegemonic uh, power. And, of course, there are plenty of negatives uh, to uh, one country's hegemony. Um, but it's also provided, I think, as you pointed out, for um, a great deal of relative stability since 1945, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the absence of hegemony is what? If the U.S. is not a hegemon, what, is, uh, what takes its place? Exactly. Disorder is my would be my answer. Chaos, anarchy. Uh, just to backtrack, um, hegemon in Greek just means leader. So a lot of to a lot of people, hege hegemony is already a bad, uh, bad has bad connotations. It doesn't in this international relations context. It has positive connotations, and that mainly has to do with a guy named Charles Kindleberger, right. who wrote a, a very important book, and then many others since then, and thought systematically about. What happens in the international system when it has a leader and what happens when it doesn't have a leader? And you could look at many periods of leadership, but the big one that Kindleberger looked at was the Pax Britannica, when Great Britain, when the British Empire ran things, although, you know, it didn't run everything, but it ran a lot of things in the 19th century. Yeah. Then that stopped. Uh, there was in between World War One and Two. There was no clear leader. The Amer America could have become leader, but didn't want to because yeah. it was isolationist. As a result, a lot of people, as a result, first of all, the word isolationism got a bad name in America, which mm -hmm. it still has. But also a lot of people blame the Great Depression and World War II, the failure of the League of Nations, all these things on the lack of a leader. Then World War II happened as a result of that. And then it, America came out of that, and that was the beginning of Pax Americana, the second period of hegemony, and said, okay, liberal internationalism, we're going to run the system better. And then America built 
the Bretton Woods system, the World Bank, and the World Trade or, or the GATT, which became the World Trade Organizations, and spawned in San Francisco and then New York, the United Nations, and also, of course, policed through its own might, you know, pacified at least half of the world, the, the free half, and under American, under that American aegis, that, that protection umbrella, I would argue a lot of people would say that made possible also um, European Union, the begin right. beginnings of that. Otherwise, I mean, how would France and Germany have reconciled? How would that have happened at the same time as there was a Cold War, if not America had led? And, and that consensus was bipartisan in America. A uh, famous quote, Republican senator around that time in the 40s said, politics stops at the water's edge. And it wasn't always that clean, but it, it seemed like that. And then there was a very imperfect, I want to emphasize that, like, you know, America did a lot of things wrong. Like, it wasn't, it's very easy to criticize America, however, led to some form of order in at least the non-communist bloc for a long time. Yeah. And then in recent decades, that consensus has become brittle and fractured, and is now on the verge of tipping. And that, I think, started in several, like, Republican and Democrat, but Obama administration already and so forth. We can talk about it. And new words, I'm just going to introduce them, have, have come into the debate. Those who want to believe, believe like, like Joe Biden, for example, that if America retreats, there is chaos. And we can yeah. go through the examples. They believe in, they would call it engagement now. And those who say, who, because you, they don't want to say we're isolationist, they would say, they would argue, instead of for engagement, they would say restraint or selective retrenchment. So we we had overstretched, we've got to do nation building at home, something like that. We've yeah. got to withdraw. But basically all of them, including Biden, of course, who was in the Obama administration, they wanted to retreat selectively from the world and then everything went wrong first russia ukraine now hamas israel fear of china taiwan coups in the in the sahel and africa and there and and it's like whoops and it's almost like reminding so the debate is very much current this larger pre-existing debate does the world need a hegemon? Is that good for America? Is that good for the world? Is it bad for everybody? And we can't agree on it. But it's it's extremely current now because of this multiplicity of crises, this yeah. polycrisis, as it's been called. And we're talking on December 6th, um, by the way, just to orient this in time, because uh, you know we have... From day to day, new pieces of data. Yesterday, we had the U.S. Senate failing to reach agreement on how they would move forward the aid package to Ukraine and Israel, um, important for each of those uh, crises, but in different ways, I think. Uh, and there will be a renewed attempt uh, today. We'll see where that goes. But do you think, Andreas, that we are at a moment that is comparable to the decision of the United States um, 100 years ago, more give or take, uh, not to ratify the Versailles, not, not to join the League of Nations, sorry. Um, oh, that's an interesting, uh, and yes, I do, actually. It, it's very interesting. There are many parallels because, for instance, Woodrow Wilson 
that, you know, conceived the League of Nations. And that was a brief burst of liberal internationalism that was new in American history at that time. And yeah. out of that came several things, above all, the League of Nations. Came home and a Republican Congress, the Republicans were completely different. Senate refused to ratify it. In a way, at that point, the League of Nations were, was already moribund because it w didn't have one of the most important, probably the most important power behind it. And, f and at that point, that marked the, the relapse into isolationism. And of course, in the current context, we're on a s in a similar situation. It could go one way or the other. But we have a Republican Party that is a MAGA or a, a, a parts of which, well, that is split. That's the whole point. Yeah. Uh, in a MAGA wing, a Trump Trump wing, uh, to which the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, belongs. And the question there is, will this become a, an autocracy if, if there's Trump 2.0? Well, and, and other people are writing very good articles about his plans for the domestic republic, you know? Yeah. And what does that mean internationally? Because he clearly is a nationalist and an isolationist and a transactionalist. He doesn't believe in any kind of regime or, or strategic alliances, but just deals with leaders, whether it's Kim Jong-il or he might make a deal with Putin, but he might change his mind. So it's one deal at a time, but it's basically a complete disdain for alliances and allies, especially NATO. The fear is that he would pull out of NATO. So, and, and therefore, because you brought up the League of Nations, America built this international order that is kind of... It's not gone, but is that that is like in front of our eyes, sort of being yeah, dissolved. It's under it's under a, a right stress. So only America, I believe, could preserve it. And if America turns against it, it's definitely dead. And that is the specter in geopolitics hanging over all of us. I think is a return of Trump, because I I do believe that would be curtains for this international order. Mm -hmm. Um. You described, uh, you know, just you know, fleetingly uh, the efforts that the United States went to in the Pax Americana period, the post-war um, uh, American period of leadership. That involved huge expenditure of resources. Um, it required political consensus at home, more or less, and uh, it also required you know, skill um, to carry this out. Um, is the so if the United States is no longer going to be a hegemon, is that going to be by design or just by entropy, by a failure to keep its act together? Uh, another great question. I, I don't. I mean, both. It, Trump has no interest in this type, positive type of hegemony, that because he feels America is being fleeced, taken advantage of, American carnage at home. To, you know, get the Germans to pay for this and that, and he makes up his facts. And his, there is a, by the way, there is a justified anger at allies like Germany for yeah. not paying more for defense, for not sharing the burdens. But what Trump, uh, uh, Trump did not has never understood, is that the hegemon, that it, there are expenses involved with being a hegemon, because you sometimes. To, in order to preserve the system, you occasionally act against your own narrowly conceived interest in order to preserve the system. But you still preserve the system. That means you don't have to intervene in major wars. There is a trading system that makes you rich and, and lets us buy cheap goods from all over the world. There are these benefits. Yeah. So there is that. 
but then the the what was your word like like not by design but entropy 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 uh, perfect like like second law of third dynamics i think that's what we're witnessing again this week but since i moved here this summer you know the the house of representatives has been a complete you know like it's shambolic it, it, it you know speaker and then after failed speakers and internal they cannot really agree on anything and they've lost at the same time we've had one senator putting for a long time a hold on State Department, in other words, diplomatic appointments. So a lot of our embassies abroad are not yep. even staffed at the top level. We had a different senator only this week drop, not even totally drop his hold, that that is stop blocking the confirmation of something like 500 top mm -hmm. um, Pentagon appointments from yep. like different levels and the and the top admirals and generals are still don't have it which because of the rotation system the entire so they are so there's this in all of it by the way for domestic like they each of them has their little domestic reasons so like thinks very narrowly instead instead of strategically and it's this domestic dysfunction yeah the partisan polarization all of that that if you're looking at this from from Europe or Asia or the Middle East makes you go, or, or Kiev at the moment, where mm -hmm. they're very worried right now, makes you go. Oops, they're not. They can't even get their act together. To be a hegemon, you have to have a certain will to agree on an external stance, and I think that is increasingly gone. Maybe not even just understood. I think most people in this town don't don't care that much about it, don't understand it, or have other things that that are more important to them. Like for the Republicans, the, yeah. the the southern border at the moment, right? Which is which is important, but it's kind of tangential. It doesn't really belong here, you know. Yeah, and so what you're suggesting is, well, of course, the presidential election in 2024 here will be crucial in the course the United States takes, but it's not the only factor. You could have, for example, President Biden reelected, but with a Republican House and or Senate that would continue this sort of shambolic, to use your phrase, um, uh, inability to take the necessary actions to provide resources in a timely way so that they can be applied to the challenges the United States sees in the international order. Yeah, and I don't even mean to poo-poo it, because actually this restraint versus engagement debate in this street where we're sitting right now and the think tanks around us, that precedes the Trump phenomenon, and that, and that's going to be there after. So Obama, it was Obama who said uh, we need nation building at home. Yeah, meaning not abroad. Let's because they all wanted to get out of Afghanistan, and Biden did, and he did it badly. So for instance, so that won't be around. And at the same time, in domestic politics, a lot of um, you know Americans are wondering, and this is, you know, understandable, what's in it for us? Why are we in all these places when we got all these problems at home? So this kind of isolationist impulse is like, there's a great book by Charles Kupchan called Isolationism. It's It was actually the default since George Washington of American history. You always yeah. go back to that, okay? It took a sort of special circum situation after World War II and during the Cold War for people to say, no, actually, we get it. We, we have to have this role of hegemon and we, and we have to be able to pay for it because it's cheaper in the long run. Yeah. But that consensus is gone. You're, you're right. And, and that'll outlast Trump. And the other thing, I do think if, 
if Trump fails or even goes to prison because of his many trials or something like that, and this extremist wing is no longer a MAGA or a Trumpist wing, then it gets more interesting. Because if, let's say, something like, I don't think there's a big chance of this, but if Nikki Haley were the Republican, then uh, 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 president, the whole thing would be very different. I don't think she's an isolationist or a hyper-nationalist like Trump, even though she she worked for him at the United Nations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So... Of course, most of what we focus on here at the American-German Institute is is Europe and Germany and the American relations with them. So what would an end to the U.S. commitment to playing this ordering function mean for Europe? Oh, my God. I think, first of all, I think they've, they're aware that it might spell the end of European integration as such as they've understood it because of all the assumptions they've made, the Germans in particular, but other Europeans as well. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they've been so scared of Trump. If you remember Merkel and the congratulatory, congratulatory note that wasn't a congratulatory note that she wrote when Trump first got elected, right. where it was a short, it was completely, I, I was like stunned because it's not, you know, essentially a list of, of virtues she would like an American president to have as a way of saying for, and for our listeners the, the she also conditioned essentially germany's cooperation with the united states on holding to those values that had characterized exactly. the, the united states international engagement around that time then. i wrote a column comparing uh, america to a father figure and france to the mother figure in post-war germany because i think the germans again they've had so many illusions and now they're aware of it right post after the Putin's invasion of Ukraine, that they had illusions. But especially after reunification, they became very smug, the Germans, mm-hmm. and thinking that their worldview, which is post-national, post-heroic, it's been called, it's post-aggression, where they're so enlightened, the world will come around to the German and European point of view and will all just make peace and follow the rules, that that was naive, that in fact, German unification, European integration... Uh, I think Franco-German reconciliation and all these things were only possible because there was essentially a father figure. The the you know America still has its nuclear bombs that could be flown by German fighter pilots if it came for that, because it protected West Germany and then the United Germany throughout the Cold War, right? And it made possible that these middle powers put aside their old grievances and said, okay, we'll build something better together, and I'm glad they did. But the now in a, in, a, in a world that is back to a 19th century world, spheres of influence where imperialists like Putin uh, take territory, and we, uh, that kind of realist, realpolitik, it's a German word, but they, they were proud of having overcome their own concept, Bismarck's realpolitik, you know, that will be gone. And that's sunk in, and therefore they're trying to rearm their army, but they're, it's not going well. Mm-hmm. Japan is doing it much faster. And um, Poland isn't happy with Germany. And so uh, there are, as you, well, the, the far right is, is gaining everywhere. The, I think the faith in the European project is already gone. And if, if Trump 
were back in and actually were to withdraw his America's protective hand, a lot of these assumptions would just vanish the way Nord Stream 2, the gas was blown up. I mean, overnight. And I'm not sure, even in domestic politics, what, what would happen in Germany and some of these other countries. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mentioned, um, it's a quote from one of your recent columns, you, Europe wasn't built for an era of hard power and war. So if we're on the verge of, uh, of a return um, to a non-hegemonic, um, uh, international system, and you already gave uh, gave a hint at the you know, d- dire consequences that would have for Europe because of the assumptions on which modern post-war Europe has been built would vanish. Uh, what would that begin to look like? You know, I think about the uh, the role played by Hungary under Viktor Orban, with mm. with its um, you know constant invoking of Hungary's. Uh, revisionist aspirations, even though it's not a revisionist policy. Mm. Um, do, do you think that would be any, uh, one of the characteristics of a, of a post-hegemonic uh, Europe that you have these kinds of um, internecine uh, you know, grievances and, and battles resurfacing? Or would it be more characterized by the external threat, let's say, that, uh, that Russia and Putin represent through the invasion of Ukraine, but much wider ambitions that wouldn't stop there? I think elements of all of those. But first of all, there's like return to hard power politics. That's already happened. Yeah. That was the Zeitenwende that Schultz, I think, talked about just after the uh, uh, Putin's invasion. I mean, full on invasion, February 2022. So the the watershed or the turning point from the old, it's such an awful word, but rules based, but a pacific, peaceful, an idea of peace policed by someone in the background yeah. uh, to a hard power world. The hegemony point is different is like it, because it might already be gone and it might disappear and it might disappear, as we've been saying, because America no longer wants to be hegemon or because it can no longer be hegemon. And that would be the argument of overstretch. Mm-hmm. That it, it is as, and, of course, it's also true if you look historically – all previous hegemons at some point stopped being hegemon. It just it's just a question of when, because you know, other powers rise. And I, I definitely think we're back in that era already, and that explains a lot of the anxiety everywhere in the world, but also in Europe. And you do have I mean, so Orban's rise was long and sort of predates some of these events, but um is a symptom of this. But I think you see it in Erdogan and Turkey and, of course, in Putin. And, of course, Orban's slow-motion takeover of Hungary, which is no longer by Freedom House, I think, a, a democracy considered that, is actually was sort of the game plan that the MAGA Republicans have been studying it there. They, they, oh, they indeed, invite Orban. Indeed, it's an inspiration to Absolutely. many but people. But they want to do it faster now because they realize there are more checks and balances here, so therefore Trump is getting... So you will have that. And the interesting thing is what happens, and this is a sort of a, a weird intellectual flaw in those people, is they think at the moment that nationalists or far-right uh, populists, that there's an affinity 
But what's what happens when Poland and Hungary and Slovakia next door are all populist, you know, um, uh, autocrats? Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Orban has he wears scarves showing a greater a map of greater hungary a lot right. of it is in romania and serbia so there's a lot going and on and ukraine yeah so what happens when we all revert to our little nationalisms and bump heads first of all we then we won't solve any problems like climate change forget nuclear disarmament talks with china or anybody we'll, we'll probably a lot of us will try to get nukes right because it's mm-hmm. it's a it's, a, it's in our, you know, like Iran first, Hungary first, whoever, South Korea first. And and our interests clash because that's the thing about national interests, they clash. And there's then no longer a consensus above it of internationalism, of multilateral institutions or anything like that to to get us to go to peace. So so the, these people who think they have affinities will, will soon lose that, and, we will, and that is anarchy. And, of course, anarchy is the international system in general. There's a famous book by Hedley Bull, which I recommend. It's old. The Anarchical Society. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, the world doesn't have a government, and that anarchy just means no government. So that's also the argument for hegemony is, like, because, the, because it's anarchical, if, if no one leads, we're going to be at each other's throats, as we, for most of history, have been. Therefore, it's better if someone leads. And actually, yeah. a lot of us, like Germany, should help others, like America, be the leader. Yeah? So some of us have to be followers. And if that goes away, then we'll all become Orbans, and it'll be extremely ugly. And so what are European, uh, and European, I guess I should define that a little more carefully, um, what are Germany's options if we see a reversion to that kind of a world? You know, the, 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 so the politician, the, the, if you, I don't know if you interview those. You do occasionally. Yeah. They have to give you an answer, and it'll be ought to, should, must. The great thing about being columnist, I can just describe it and say, <laughs> go to hell in a handbasket. I don't yeah. think there are any good options for Europe either. Right. Uh, for example, it would be a, a logical consequence of all of this, but that's true for the past few decades. But now it would be okay. Let's have a European army. Mm-hmm. Let's say Trump. Like, let's say the America does withdraw, and let's not even talk about the nuclear deterrent. Let's let's leave that out. Should Europe or Germany have a nuclear deterrent? But let's just say we should probably have an army as a as one transnational pillar of NATO or something like it, that could stare down Putin on its own. And then it occurs to you, oh, that's interesting, an European army. We've talked about, we talked about that starting in the 1950s. Right. It was originally in a condition to get West Germany to allow it to enter NATO and have its own army, the Bundeswehr. And the interesting thing was at the time, it was the French Assemblée Nationale that said no. Ah, yes, the European yeah. defense community. And again and again, the, the problem, the, and it's this, this European army, which is not quite a European defense uh, union or something like that, which is about, well, they can't even do that. Let, let's just go one level yeah. down. So we need to arm Ukraine, and both in, the, in America and in Europe were struggling. So the Ukrainians today, I read again, are worrying that they're going to run out of artillery in this World War I-style trench war war that is a, a stalemate. They're yeah. going to need shells 
for a long time and drones and the rest of it and we can't supply to them so you'd think that we could have by now figured in Europe I mean that they could have by now figured out how to standard how to have one kind of tank one kind of helmet one kind of gun one kind of everything and scale it up they haven't yeah so they can't do that but then you get to the bigger question could they ever fight together in this new hard power world against anybody presumably Putin at the moment or a Prigozhin figure, or, or who, it doesn't matter who. And every time they come close to the debate, they realize they, they won't agree on who's commander-in-chief. They don't have the same foreign policy. On foreign policy, I believe they haven't changed it. I think it's still uh, unanimity right. in the European Council. So one country, usually Orban, can say no to any— and foreign policy of the European Union usually just means putting out a press release. But one country is enough— like Orban, to say, oh, no, it mentions China, and I just had a meeting with them. No, it's not going out. So in that kind of world of thinking so small, you realize that the obvious things the Europeans could do are not going to happen. And then just from, because I, I for 11 years before I moved here, I observed the German debate, which yeah. you're close to, whether it's the talk shows and their ideas at the F and all of that, or you talk, and there is a very small, much smaller than in this town, circle of experts who think geopolitically. And then the mass of people, because through, during the Cold War and since unification, they had these illusions and relied implicitly on America. They did not think strategically. They are still in a, in, in a different world completely. So they're not willing to put these very hard, like, for instance, should you have a nuclear deterrent? At some point, is that a discussion yeah. worth having? It's complete taboo, and that because that's after. Although Yoshka Fisher brought it up this uh, just a few days ago, he did. Which for Yoshka Fisher to be the one to bring it up, is, what did he say? I'd missed that. He he talked about there being a European uh, nuclear deterrent, and I believe he put it firmly in the context of the European Union. Yeah. Now. I don't believe he said more. Uh, I'd have to go back and check the full uh, sta uh, statement, but I don't think he said more about where it would come from, whom it would belong to. Is is this a, a recooked version of the idea of a French um, exactly. a nuclear deterrent being, um, you know, applicable in a broader context? Uh, it, but uh, it's and and and, out and there. that's where these ideas only these debates only become interesting because they immediately die as the European army. These are large, grand ideas. Yeah, the Germans who are uh, Timothy Garden Ash said this about Merkel and the speaking style. They after World War II they wanted to to show the world we don't do these world changing that stuff we we don't like not, not wild-eyed crazy-haired people anymore so they don't want to talk about these grand ideas but the european army would be one and for, we just touched on it it won't happen yeah and the nuclear deterrent that's another thing that won't happen certainly not in the time frames that that matter yeah and it is exactly that the french force de frappe is only french and then you'd have to talk about macron who talks about european autonomy but does not when want to be a regional hegemon, say, yeah. when it matters. In the same way, you could accuse Germany of when it's mattered in the past 12 years since the euro crisis, when it could be the economic hegemon, if we divvy it up, by, it also doesn't want to. Yeah. So no one wants to lead Europe to become one of the great powers in a new great power system, 
And that's the dilemma. Somebody would have to move. Also, any hegemon who, who says we will do it, we understand something's changed, the others would have to accept that person. The Poles would have to accept Germany. They don't want to, and so forth. Yeah. A different look at Germany and its role in Europe. You, know, you, wrote, uh, you wrote an article that appeared this week um, reflecting on Henry Kissinger, um, of course, uh, who and and what he meant for for relations between the United States and Germany and Germany's reintroduction into the community of nations, um, country from which he was forced to flee. And so you talk a bit in that column about about the German question, capital G, capital Q, and, and uh, you know when Germany was disunited and weak, that was a problem. Yeah. And when Germany was united and strong, that was also a problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you 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 cited um, a, a quote from Kissinger um, earlier this year, when he said he worried about quote the inability of Germany to understand the transformation of its position, which presumably means no longer being weak and divided, and being but being united and strong, and therefore needs to be cognizant and perhaps to exert a certain kind of moderation. Um, is Kiss- was Kissinger right about that? Is that really Germany's problem now, that it, it, that it is too united and strong and doesn't realize how much weight it throws around? He said that in his beautifully gravelly voice. I opened that column with yes. the accent, which is this not Franconian, not American, not Germany, just his own. And he told it he was this shrunken inch already. It was this year. And he told it to my our editor-in-chief at Bloomberg, John Micklethwaite, and and said that, and of course, at that point, because also he was speaking slowly, he he took the prerogative of not always spelling out in detail his grand statements, which mm-hmm. you know, like elder statesmen can ride on. Can that get for away a with while. that. Can get away with that. <laughs> but of course, if you know the first of all, the, the the thing about the when it was disunited and weak versus united and strong, he took, had longer time horizons than, for instance, people in this town, and for. A, a, a good couple of centuries, Germany was disunited and weak. There was something called the Holy Roman Empire. It was just mm-hmm. about 300 principalities they couldn't unite. When, in fact, on the fringes around it, France especially, there were st- strong central monarchies. And that weakness sucked them into something called, called the Thirty Years' War, which I believe, and by, by, by the way, World War One and Two together is essentially also was another Thirty Years' War. So there were these two Thirty Years' War, which is interesting. One came out of Germany being disunited and weak, and his his Kissinger observed that. And the second came out of it being united and strong, much too strong. Yeah. We started with hegemony. World War One essentially happened. This is a historical thesis called the Thucydides Trap after Sparta and Athens. Not because an archduke got shot in the Balkans. That also happened. That was the trigger. But the cause was that Wilhelmine Germany, now united and too strong, challenged the British Empire for hegemony, and they had to work it out. And that made the system unstable. And that, too, is maybe where we are now with China and America. So I, I forget how we got there. Oh, Kissinger. Yeah. Yeah. So then... After World War II, Germany was disunited for sure. Yeah. 
I like to say there were then three, if you include Austria. I mean, <laughs> technically, right? I mean, okay, right? I mean, that that was the whole. If you look hist- in the same time span, uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, Austria would have been the it was long supposed to be the leader of the whole thing, and that could have s- saved us a lot of problem if they'd done it instead of Berlin. But so there were three, or really two, and um, and they were initially weak, and then became stronger with America's help, and it. Then unification with America's help, and now obviously this enormous strength again in the middle of Europe, but in this new system, the European Union, which was built to contain any power, which meant Germany from dominating. Yeah, uh, and dominating is not the same as hegemony. And so Kissinger, I believe, by saying that, said, "Okay, the world's changed, and Europe's changed, and Germany's changed, and it must lead." And then after that quote. Mm-hmm. As part of the extended quote, he said, wisdom, moderation. But I think he was saying, like, you know, during the euro crisis and during these other crises, you have to sometimes act like a hegemon, which means you have to. Okay, so the, the German right would not say bail out the others, but you have to preserve the system. And if you want a European army, if you want a strong Europe that stays autonomous, you have to do something for it. And if you want mm-hmm. a transatlantic alliance, you have to pay for it. You have to do something. You cannot shirk. You cannot be a free rider. Because definitely he comes from this city where, I mean, Washington, D.C., where the view is, and it's true, that West Germany, that they became very smug behind their post-war worldview and just yeah. became free riders on the system. And you cannot be that. I think that's what he was saying. Mm-hmm. That if you s- keep insisting on that, if you just say, I don't want to talk about these big things, I don't want to acknowledge that the world has changed, then you destabilize the system. Because actually Germany is economically a major power, a great power. Fourth largest economy in, in the world, yeah. uh, in fact. Um, so it's this mixture of recognizing the importance uh, that Germany has, um, but also in some cases um, not recognizing the impact of, in, of its inaction. Um, and I find, and I want to hear views on that, but that is true both in terms of policies and then, the, and that's true of America too, by the way. Sure. But I find it's also extremely true of the way German, including the diplomats, the Germans appear to others. Because one thing I think that's sunk in only now is how arrogant the Germans appeared to Eastern Europeans, Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, and Ukrainians and Poles, when the Germans lectured them on their new enlightened worldview. Don't you realize peace has broken out everywhere and we do it do it like us and there'll be never... And Frieden schaffen ohne Waffen. And you need to build a future with Russia. And of um, course, and, and yes. the Russians are the good guys, not the bad guys, and you can only have make peace with Russia, not against. And the and the Estonians and all these people that just mentioned, like, have you insane? Do you know where... The blood, the killing fields, the bloodlands of Timothy Snyder's book, where that happened. It happened between Russia and Germany again and again and again. We know Moscow. We know the Kremlin. And and so there was a the Germans, and then in a different story, the Germans go to Brussels and lecture others on fiscal probity, which is a, 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 in, in the current context of German news. Is, I mean, this, this, the, the lack of irony, the lack of humor, but the lack of self, self-awareness the Germans come across to others as lecturing, which has turned many Europeans off. Mm-hmm. And that has so far interfered with 
Germany also playing a bigger role. So it, it works, it, I just wanted to say it yeah. works in two ways. The Germans have not been aware so far of what their own politics and their own tone, tonality, how that is perceived elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also true that Germany has shown um, many stages, including in the post-Cold War period, um, a, a sense of a recognition of the stake that they have in the system, the ways in which they benefit uniquely, um, and that that requires sacrifices. Now, in some cases, that's been sort of checkbook diplomacy, uh, Germany being ready to underwrite uh, essentially the European uh, currency, single currency, the euro, as well as the, you know, the lion's share of the European Union budget. So there has been some readiness. Uh, but I want to bounce back and forth because yeah. you probably have good arguments I haven't thought of. But you're saying they, and I, you want to be fair because I, I, I don't want to, you know, overdo it, yeah. the criticism. But the... Um, what was the word you used? That they've underwritten. Yes. So they've acted hegemon. They've practiced hegemony by underwriting the 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 euro system. Yeah. And that was a debate which is behind us. But that was about a decade ago, and like or or in the in the you know aughts in the in the teens. And the question is, did they? Because for instance, they didn't. They benefited from an the Deutschmark would have with their trade surpluses and their economic policies and the way they made their labor market cheap mm -hmm. since Schroeder under Merkel, they would have, they would have had a trade surplus and, and their currency would have appreciated. appreciated. Mm -hmm. But actually, because they were part of this other system, the euro system, it stayed low. And therefore, Germany had for years, I believe it still does, you might know, the largest trade surplus in the world. It wasn't China, it was Germany. And that caused problems in the entire world economy so then there was a euro crisis and you know the way it's remembered in greece and spain and portugal and ireland and france and italy and everywhere else and maloney is now loving it that she can le lecture the germans like oh your budget problems you know <laughs> but the way it's remembered there is that the, in during the euro crisis they did not underwrite mm -hmm. the system mm -hmm that they made it very complicated and tried to wriggle out of it, and so they postponed the problem, kicked it down the road, but did not address it. And in terms of ec economy, I would say they actually reaped the windfall. You could view it like that. They reaped the windfall and imposed a burden on the world, an imbalance called the largest trade uh, current account surplus uh, in the world. Yeah. So, I'm in, and again, during that debate, the domestic debate didn't acknowledge that part at all. It was essentially a moralistic debate on, oh, the others need to get their house in order. Yeah. Right, if you recall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and yes, the ironies are abundant uh, when Germany now is facing its own. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not the same as the debt ceiling um, and continuing resolution cycle <laughs> that we go through in this country. But it's, but, it's similar. But it's, it, it has uh, certainly uh, something in common because they're having to redo they're having to pass a uh, supplemental budget for this year that justifies um, the money that uh, was moved from one off-budget fund to another, uh, and to figure out how they're going to cover a gap of something like 17 billion euros, something like 5% of next year's budget. And then, and then how you do, on how do, you do it year after yes. year. So it does, it should give us pause that both these powers that we're 
that the U.S. and the Germany that are dear to our hearts and so important are simultaneously having different kinds of but equally important budget, I mean, fiscal nightmares, Yeah, you know, unconstitutional budgeting over there in the— it, you know, with the European fiscal reform still outstanding, where they were going to lead, how is that yeah. going to play out? Maybe they can't do their own, but they this debt break, that was a bad idea ten years ago. It was a bad idea all all since, but they can't drop that. They probably won't want to raise taxes, and so something has to give, and that is um, and it's also distracting them. Yeah. And and we have our own problems here where we're continuing resolutions, which is this technical term for we can't pass budget, so we'll just keep it at the same until we <laughs> hope, hopefully in like next month and then next year we'll agree, and, and it never does. And on and on and on without agreement on what do we fund, and therefore some of the things that may end up getting not funded are Ukraine, and then you see the cascade of steps that they're worried about in Kiev, which is we might actually lose. Yeah. And then it'll be much more expensive for the U.S. and Germany and everyone. I can't say that's an optimistic note on which we're going to wind up. But that's I not think what that's I signed uh, up for. <laughs> what you signed me up for. Um, but no, I think that, uh, I think that uh, you know, reminds us what the stakes are um, and what we need to come back to uh, in the next uh, episode or in a future episode um, where, we, where we see um, where the United States has moved since December 6th. Uh, how Germany has solved its uh, budget problems uh, and uh, and how it uh, re-envisions uh, its role uh, with its neighbors and in Europe. Thanks so much, Andreas Klute. Thank you, Jeff. And we'll have all of you with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American-German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. You may know us under our old name, the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Send us your feedback by email at info at AICGS.org or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we have new handles at A-M-G-E-R-I-N-S-T. And also please visit our website at AmericanGerman.Institute, formerly AICGS, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks. Thanks.